Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. The title of this morning's church message or sermon. How many of you saw it? If you didn't, I'm going to, the title is When Church People Complain. Are you excited about this one today as much as I am? Oh, yeah. I, and some of you might be, you know, the conspiracy theorists among us are thinking, have people been complaining and is that why pastor is preaching on this message? The reason why I'm preaching this particular message is because we've decided we're going to study, we like taking, I'd say 70% of our Sundays throughout the year, picking a book of the Bible and just kind of going through the whole book. Um, if you go back 12 months, you'll see we've really covered, we've covered a lot of the Bible this year. We actually covered all of the minor prophets over the summer, and we've been spending uh, a lot of time in the book of Acts. Last week, we hopped back in. We took a little break. We hopped back in. The next section of Acts, if we choose not to skip over anything, which we've made that choice, we're not going to look at the passages that seem a little more controversial and skip over them. We're going to look into them. This is the next one. And so, no, this is not a knee-jerk reaction to just a bunch of angry emails um, from the last week. Uh, this, is ju- this just happens to be right in the next, next line. There were, no, okay, there were no angry emails last week. So maybe you saved them all for this week. That's fine. Um, I'm going to put an auto-response on there for the next two weeks. I'm just kidding. No, uh, this is not a knee-jerk reaction to anything. I just, the person who wrote this account into the Bible was very brave. Because when you really, really care about somebody, uh, you know, somebody you're in a relationship with, a family member, a spouse, a child, wouldn't you agree with me that you never want to say anything publicly that would cast people you love in a negative light? Have you ever gotten in trouble when you just thought you were being funny or you were venting and you told somebody about a real negative episode in the life of somebody you cared about and you you repeated that story irresponsibly and it got back around those are not good moments and the closer you walk with somebody and the more you get to know them usually the deeper you love them and care about them and also the more about them you learn that maybe you didn't know before i mean those of you who are married or who have been married Wouldn't you say there are some things you discovered about your spouse that were not disclosed before you said, I do? Someone said, yes, 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 oh, yes. And not all of them were positive, endearing things, were they? Right. Now, that's true of probably any friendship, any relationship, anybody that you care about, not just necessarily, you know, not just a spouse. The, the, the closer you journey with somebody in life and the deeper a friendship grows, the more you learn about them and you, you see all of their issues, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And if you really care about somebody, you kind of want to help cover over those ugly issues and you don't want everybody else to see those. Now, the person who wrote Acts is a man by the name of, we should know this by this point, who wrote Acts? Luke. He wrote Acts, and he also wrote another book in the New Testament. you know what the other one was? Luke. Together, those two books take up 24% of the New Testament. So this one guy wrote a quarter of the New Testament. I want you to know something. Luke was a believer in Jesus. He loved Jesus, and he loved, loved, loved the church. He loved his Christian brothers and sisters, loved them, would do anything for them, served with them, bled with them, cried with them, praised with them. Luke, in his heart of hearts, would never want to, for his own selfish reasons, cast the people that he loved in anything but the best possible light. But he does something very brave in these seven verses. Not only is it brave, it makes all of his writing even more historically credible. Because he takes a moment and he records in the Bible an episode that casts the church in a less than positive light. He airs something that could have been a really ugly part of who the church was behind closed doors. He takes us inside at least the first episode of grumbling and bad attitudes and whining and complaining inside the church 
between church people and other church people. And if you're wanting to really make the church look perfect and pristine and great, this is not the story you put in in the history book. This is the one you cut out. But it shows us that we, number one, can trust Luke, that he's telling us the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Okay? He's not afraid to show us that the church is a godly institution filled with ungodly people. And what he's showing us is that churches are not immune to complaining and complainers. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands this morning for you to identify yourself as a complainer. Okay? Um, I could ask your friends to out you, but I won't do that this morning. You can complain to someone about that one, or you can complain about. You can complain with. You can complain against. This is not necessarily a message on how to complain more effectively. However, what it shows us is that Echo should not be so naive to think that we will be the one church that will never have issues that come up that inspire complaints or require some sort of dialogue to address a need that is not being met the best possible way. It's not so much even a message on how to prevent complaining. The Bible very simply says don't do it um, and leaves us a little bit in the dark as to the 50 steps on how to complain less. It seems to indicate the closer you walk to Jesus and surrender your life to him, you'll get more wisdom about when to speak up and how to speak up and who to speak up to and when to apply grace. It requires a great degree of maturity in Christ. And so if we as a church are committed to helping you who want to become more mature in Christ, it seems that some growth in this area will occur along the way. More importantly, it's what, what did the apostles do and not do when complaints rose in the church to handle this situation in a God-honoring way? That's what we want to look at today. So let me read to you this entire passage And I'll give you the big idea. Then we'll just go back through and look at what happened. Who was complaining? What were they complaining about? Who heard the complaints? How did they respond to the complaints? And then what was the outcome? So let me read to you. This chapter starts off really well with this chapter has bookends. Uh, Those of you that don't buy books anymore might not even know what a bookend is, okay? A bookend is something heavy you put on a bookshelf to keep your books in the OCD person's world like me from, you know, lining up from tallest to shortest and by width of things. And then the bookends keep them all nicely, tightly packed together so they don't tip over one way or another, thus making your books askew and rendering an OCD person unable to accomplish anything at all until the books are smashed back together. Is there any other OCD person in the house that can identify with me this morning? Okay, so um, like me, you can find really cool old antique things that are heavy and make your own, or you can go to Ikea and buy 10 of them for a dollar. Whichever works for you, bookends are great if you have books. Amen, okay, big idea for the day, go buy some bookends. Uh, Well, first of all, buy some books and then get bookends. Here we go. But as the believers readily or rapidly multiplied, this is a theme throughout the book of Acts. How many times have we seen this already? We've seen this a bunch of times. The church continued to increase in number. The church continued to increase. The believers rapidly multiplied. We see it again. And we see this bookend at the end of this section. It starts this way. As the church was growing rapidly, you get this next sentence that doesn't seem to fit. There were rumblings of discontent. Now, wouldn't you expect rumblings of discontent to happen when the church was in decline and everybody was trying to figure out why? This actually tells us that just because the church is growing rapidly, we should not expect complaints to be non-existent. As the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers. Understand this is personal. I don't mean it personally. Yes, they did. They meant this personally. One group of people in the church who came from one language group complained about 
the other group of people in the church who spoke a different language, saying that their own widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. Now, the particular issue might not resonate with you, but I do want you to hear one group in the church accused another group in the church of discriminating against them. Okay? This is a 2,000-year-old issue. Okay? So the 12 apostles called a meeting of everybody. They call a meeting. They bring them all into one room or one space. And they said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And we will unpack that statement because that sounds like a superiority complex here, okay? But it's really not. And so, brothers, select seven men who are all well-respected, full of the spirit, and full of wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. Do you see verse 6? Verse 6 is a surprise, because when does this ever happen? You get two groups of people in the room, and there's some rumbling, an idea is thrown out on the table. Who likes it? Usually one party or the other. You know who likes this? Everyone. Zero dislikes. Only thumbs up. No YouTube video ever, but this one, all thumbs up. Everyone liked the idea, and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Timon, I practice these, Parmenas, and Nicholas of Antioch, who was an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. Now read verse 7. Here's your bookend, okay? So God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem. And I love this sentence, and I wish I could spend more time on this. This is shocking. And many of the Jewish priests were converted too. Wow. Now, if you've been reading up to this point along with us, who were some of the main opponents to the Christians? The Jewish priests. In fact, up to this chapter, we see some of the strategies that the enemy has used so far in the early life of the church to bully them, to intimidate them, to try and slow them down, to silence them, shut them down. And usually what he used was he got a spirit of offense and jealousy in the heart of the Jewish priests and the council and the officials that ran the whole Jewish population. And they were the ones who were the biggest antagonists. But that wasn't succeeding. So the enemy tries a new tactic. Well, if I can't divide them from the outside... In fact, he saw dividing them from the outside just galvanized and made them unified and made them stronger. Maybe I can divide them from the inside. And you know what he uses? He uses, the, he uses a centuries-old racial offense and suspicion between two groups of people surrounding an unmet need. And that's all he uses to try and divide the church. So let's see what happened and how the apostles responded. Here's the big idea. The big idea is that a healthy church is able to properly identify and respond to unmet needs without resorting to whining and complaining. I want Echo to be a healthy church. And that does not happen automatically because we are not by nature healthy people. We are by nature unhealthy people. The Bible tells us this. If that's offensive to you, we're going to have to go back to Gospel 101. The Bible tells us that we are broken people, and the Bible also tells us we all realize this in some way, and we are seeking some type of methodology to make us feel better. It was no clearer to me. One of the things I fasted, I wasn't going to share this, but I'll share this. One of the things I fasted during this last fast was listening to talk radio while I was in the car. Okay? I just turned, I, I, let, I have satellite radio in my car because I drive a lot, and so I just let the radio completely off and it's usually sports talk radio or something uh vanilla you know i try and just you know just while i drive just leave it on there uh, that or the station 131 which is a bunch of different preachers and some of them just resonate with me more than others i just turned it off the whole month just spent that time in the car with the lord which i thought was going to be just terrifying but it's actually been great i turned it back on on friday when i was driving uh, i had a, a longer trip ahead of me and i was driving on friday and the topic they were on, uh, on this radio station, was 
uh, if you had three wishes, which I don't know how they got on this, if you had three wishes for the genie in the bottle, what would your three wishes be? And so every celebrity, you know, every sports person they had on that day, they started off with that question. And it all boiled down to this. Listen, my life would be great if I could, you know, they boiled down to health, wealth, and world peace. Every one of them, one way or another, was like, listen, if I could be ageless, and then they landed on, if I could be the age of 35 forever. And if I had unlimited wealth and I never had to worry about finances again, and if there were world peace, those would be my three wishes. And they pretty much boiled everybody down to those three things. There's a couple fourth ones that they threw in there, but they kept beating them back. And they're all saying, man, that would be perfect. And I'm thinking to myself, is there no greater statement to show the futility of man's efforts to have everything that God offers that we couldn't have? You know what God promises you? A life that's eternal. Never having to worry about your finances in a kingdom of peace. And here are all these people saying, man, if I could just get those three wishes granted, everything would be so. Even in the confessions of people not even knowing what they're saying, they're showing us. We realize we're broken. There's something we want that we can't have. And we, put our, we like spending time hypothesizing about what a genie would give us when God's saying, if you'll surrender control of your life for me, I can give you that and so much more. We know this. We are broken. We want to be a healthy church, but we realize it's not going to happen automatically because there's a bunch of unhealthy people trying to make ourselves healthy. It's not going to work. We want to be in a, a healthy church. One of the things we see a healthy church do in this passage is be able to properly identify and respond to legitimate unmet needs without having to resort to whining and complaining. So let's see what went on here. Um, Verse 1, let's go back to verse 1. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. I came across a great quote that frames this whole passage to begin with um, from, from uh, one of the commentators I read, Dr. David Guzik. The mention of growth again reminds us that the early church was highly organized. Now think about this. They knew how many people were saved. They met together regularly at specific places and specific times without mass email and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram to tell everybody, without printing bulletins. Money and goods were collected, tabulated, and distributed to those people in need. Sin was confronted and dealt with. We saw that. All these things indicate that without any school of seminary, this church had some level of organization. So let's give them some credit. They are now numbering in the thousands, more than one out of, you know, by some estimates, more than one out of every five residents of the metropolis of Jerusalem at this point had converted to Christianity within the first few years. And yet they were able, they had this really great network of communication for how they organized and dealt with things. So this is a church that at some size was pretty well organized, but as we dial in, we see in this passage, there are a few gaps in their administration and organization gifts. So Satan, as we already said, had attempted a lot of different ways to just get at the church and divide them from the outside. It didn't work, so now he, he raises up an offense on the inside. Here's what you need to know. The Christian church at Jerusalem at this point consisted of, it was, it was mono-ethnic for the most part. We don't understand this as much in our Western society. Understand, when I say a Jewish person in this day and age, it referred to two things, their religion and their ethnicity, okay? It was, it was everything about their DNA, their ancestors that united them. So the overwhelming majority of Christians in this church were of the same ethnicity, but there was a dividing issue within that ethnic group. You understand that even within ethnic groups, there can be lots of divisions, right? I learned about people who explain to me about the Latin culture say, listen, Dominicans think different from Haitians who think different from this culture, who think different from this culture. And within our own large grouping, there are all kinds of subgroupings, okay? I've heard this about Italians, and they'll explain to me, trust me, within the German, I'm German, and within the German community, there's all kinds of different delineations of people. Within the Jewish ethnicity in this church, there were two groups of people, and the main division was their language. There was one group of Jews who came mainly from Palestine and Judea, and they spoke the language of Aramaic or Hebrew, okay? And they were most hardcore around traditional 
um, Old Testament Jewish culture. There was another group of people who were also of Jewish ethnicity in this church. They were speaking Greek. Now you might ask, how would a Jewish person in that time and age speak Greek instead of the language of their fathers? Well, if you've been with us, especially over the summer, you understood that um, back in the day, you know, after the days of King David, the, Israel was on a sharp decline, and eventually they, they had a civil war and split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and eventually both of those kingdoms turned their backs on the Lord, and they were both conquered by other foreign nations, and at some point, some of them were led off into captivity. Do you remember any of this? So you had a very, very, very small group of Jews who weren't led off, and they stayed put and tried to eke out life in the rubble of the Holy Land. And then you had this other group of Jews who were carried off, and they were raised in other parts, and eventually, even though they were still Jewish and in their ethnicity and they were still practicing Jews, many of them, they grew up in the Greek culture, in the Hellenistic culture, and they spoke Greek fluently. Now, how would all these people come back together in church? Well, if you look at the timeline here, the great uh, kind of ground zero for the Christian church was, the, was on the day of Pentecost, where it's one of these feasts, or the Feast of Passover, where all the Jews all over the world would make a holy pilgrimage back to the metropolis of Jerusalem. So you have all these Hellenists, Jewish, practicing Jews who didn't speak the language of their fathers, who spoke the language of the nations where they grew up in, coming back to the Passover, and here they're getting evangelized. And many of them are converting to Christianity, and what we learn is that many of them relocated to Jerusalem with their families, who brought their language with them, and now they're trying to find work and community here in the same city with their Aramaic-speaking brothers and sisters. But if you go back to the Maccabean Revolt, there has been tension brewing between these two groups for a long time before this passage comes up. There is an inherent distrust and suspicion between these two groups. One group was looked at as old school. The other group was looked at as traitors and being a version less than true Jews who stayed here in the homeland and built back up. And so now you have people united by Christ in the same church. And so far, things seem to be going okay between these two groups. Now, outside of church, there's still tension. Inside of, inside of church, it looked like they were getting along. But then there's another variable that comes into play. Mainstream Jewish practice in Jerusalem at that day was very big on daily distribution of food and financial support, welfare. They had their own built-in welfare system that was set in place in the Old Testament. And every single day, all throughout the year, the mainstream Jews in Jerusalem were taking care of the Jewish widows, the Jewish orphans, and the Jewish poor. And they were doing a really good job of it. And they funded this through the tithes and the givings of the Jewish people. So part of the social welfare system of being a Jew and part of the advantage was you knew that everybody who earned was giving money to the temple. And then the temple was overseeing the social welfare system of taking care of people who God said you need to look out for these people because they're socially disadvantaged. And widows and orphans and the poor were especially marginalized. And God cares deeply about injustice. And God cares deeply about people who are pushed to the margins and don't have the same advantages as others through no fault of their own. And God deeply cares about this and built this in to the way that they should operate. Well, here's what was happening. As Jewish people were converting to Christianity, they were pulling out of the Jewish economic cycle. Their giving was being redirected from the temple and to their welfare system to the church. Their widows who were converting to Christianity now were being overlooked. And, and, the, and the social welfare system was, was decreasing. One of the ways the hardline Jews started to draw the line between Christians and say, listen, if you convert, you can't receive the handouts anymore. And so it put this burden on the church who were all Jews, who grew up being full-blown supporters of this system, it gave the burden to the church to say, listen, if the government that exists isn't taking care of these people because of their faith, that responsibility and that question is now falling to the church. And the question is, should we as Christians, we're ethnically Jews, but we're no longer bound to the Old Testament law and econ economic system, we have to try and figure out what of that transfers and what of it doesn't into our new faith the question now fell to the church of what should we do with our own widows? 
What should we do with our own orphans, with our own poor? If they're not receiving assistance over here, what should we be doing? And what we find out from this passage is that within the church, the Greek-speaking Christians, the Hellenists, who are ethnically Jews, converted to Christianity, relocated to the city of Jerusalem, and trying, number one, we find out they were probably just more needy than their, than their Hebrew-speaking counterparts because to that city as a whole, there was a bias against them. It would have been harder for them to find jobs. And if you were a Hellenistic, Greek-speaking widow, you were almost triply disadvantaged. As a widow, you were disadvantaged because we know in their economy, if you were a widow, you had no family support system. You had no husband to provide for you. Keep in mind, husband and wife and male and female roles were much different then than they are today. They were disadvantaged. They could not find employment. And if you had no means of somebody else supporting you financially and you're undesirable in marriage, you have no means of employment, you're in bad shape. And then on top of that, if you speak Greek, you are already given the cold shoulder because the Jewish government understood if you're Greek and you're here years after Passover, you weren't here as one of us. You came here because you're a Christian, and so you're not paying into the system. You don't get help. And so what you have is the Greek-speaking people saying, our widows need to be taken care of, and the church should be taken care of, and the conclusion they came to is that we, must, we are being actively discriminated against by the Hebrew-speaking Christians in this church. They could do something, and they are doing something for theirs, but they're not doing something for ours. Okay? I hope I, it's hard to paint that. Did I paint that enough that you can understand the tension? Okay. So if that complaint comes to you and you're on the board or you're one of the pastors or you're in leadership and somebody in your church comes to you and not just somebody, a group of people. And I should say if they come to you, that's not exactly what happened here. I need to be very, very, very clear about something. The method that the Hellenistic Christians chose for voicing their issue was not the best one they could have chosen. I want to make that very, very clear. In no way, shape, or form do I want to, or did Luke, endorse the complaining. The word he used for complaining is a negative word in the Greek language. It means bad attitude, whining, grumblings, murmurings, all those different words are equivalent translations. They were causing division, and they were making it very personal. You, I want you to understand, this is a very suspicious driven accusation it's kind of like the personality type that when you see an unmet need or when you could possibly get offended you jump to the worst possible conclusion your kid doesn't get picked to the team and you automatically conclude well they should be on the team and this person has an issue against them and me well it's the teacher's fault because they singled out my daughter and they made her blah 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 blah, blah. that doesn't mean the teachers are mean to that are you the type of person who immediately jumps to questioning the character of the person that offended you that's what was going on here they were saying aha well this group of people tends in this direction every way anyway and that must be the only reasonable explanation as to why this need is not being met so this makes its way to the apostles' ears, and we're not given the full behind-the-scenes view of what the conversation was. But I want you to know there's a couple questions that if something like this surfaced in a church today, different issues, same circumstance, and it came to you as a leader, there's a couple questions that the apostles must have had to go through in their mind because we see it in their response. A couple things they need to say is, number one, should this be a problem that our church should be involved in solving. If this is really a problem, is this even worth getting involved in the conversation? Should we be helping our widows get by? Is this a legitimate, unmet need? So they had to wrestle with that. Secondly, they had to say, is it true? Is this actually happening? Is it happening that some widows under our, I was going to say under our roof, they didn't have a roof. Some widows in our church family are getting better support than others. So is this a legitimate need? Is it, is it actually happening? And then the third one was, is this the result of, if this is all true and it's all legitimate, 
Is this the result of active discrimination, which would be a sin issue? Or is this the result of poor organization and administration, which is a leadership issue? You must understand that when there is a legitimate true need, there are more than one possible true reasons for why that need might not be met. It may be the issue of sin. And you have to figure this out because you don't take a hammer to fix a glass window. You need to know what tool you use to fix which problem it is. And you handle a sin problem differently than an organizational problem or a leadership problem. And if the only tool you have as a complainer is a hammer, you may be successful one-third of the time and you will be destructive two-thirds of the time. And when you're destructive, not only do you not solve the problem, now you create an additional one. And in any relationship, you want to be the one who solves more problems than you create. Almost every job interview I've ever been to in life, when they talk about what my weaknesses are, I say, well, listen, I'll tell you what they are. There's probably more. Here's the ones I know of. But here's one thing I make a commitment to every person I've ever worked for. I will, I will solve more problems than I make. Because all of us make problems. But are you a problem solver, a problem announcer, or a problem creator? I will tell you, all of us want to have more of the first than the other two. But you need people to announce the problems with maturity and with wisdom and in the right way. So the apostles have to wrestle through, is this a need we should, is this a hill we need to die on? Do we need to have a stance on this or is this really not a problem for the church to deal with? What we can cobble together is that they decided, yes, absolutely, it dishonors God for us to have socially disadvantaged people in our church and for us to turn a blind eye for, to them. We need to be advocates for them. We need to step up for them because God is an advocate for those who are, being, who are suffering under injustice, and so should we. And they decided it, and Echo needs to embody that. We need to be on board being a champion for those who suffer injustice. God cares about this deeply. So they said, yes, we need to be involved. Second question, is this actually happening? Is it true that some widows are not getting good services? The conclusion to that that we can see, yes, it is true. And third question, is this a sin issue? Is it true that the Hebrew-speaking believers are actively withholding the good they could do towards their Greek-speaking brothers and sisters based on racial prejudice. And the conclusion that they obviously came to, and you'll see it beautifully in just a moment, is no, that is not the case whatsoever. What they see is that the Hebrew peoples had their heart, in the, the Hebrew speakers had their heart in the right place. The Greek speakers had their facts in the right place, and they had to get those people on the same page. And so here's what they come up with. Let's read it together. Here's what they come up with. Um... Uh, let's see, uh, verses 2 through 4. So the 12 called a meeting of all the believers. Let's get everybody, let's get everybody in the same place and let's talk this out. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so brothers, select seven men who are all well respected and are to full of the spirit and wisdom. We'll give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. I want to be very clear again. The complainers did not present the problem to the apostles in the best way possible. And yet, the apostles, I want, you to show, I want to show you how they respond to this. They respond with tremendous judgment. Tremendous discernment for how to handle this. And what they did say, and what they chose not even to address publicly. There's a whole part of this complaint, they threw no fuel on the fire. Okay? They absolutely affirm the legitimacy of the concern. And they approach this matter based upon the merit of evidence, facts, and research. Not upon the personality of those who complained or the manner in which this concern was presented. Because they had every right to just say, you know what, I'm not going to listen to you because you're just complaining. I'm writing you off. They were mature enough to listen to people who are saying the right thing the wrong way. And they were able to parse through 
an unmet need that was wrapped in bitterness and prejudice and suspicion and divisiveness and accusation and give that group of people the opportunity to be heard and to give them a chance for the Holy Spirit to heal their heart from this suspicion and do the right thing. And I know full well, based on how they handled Ananias and Sapphira, that if sin would have raised its head, they would have dealt with it. Okay? Second thing we see is that this statement the apostles make really needs some attention. Okay? Um, it comes across to our Western ears as very um, superiority-laden. Hey, our job is not to be waiting on tables and running a food program. We're the teachers. We're the students. We're the scholars. We can't leave what we're doing to take on this menial task of load in and load out. Of, of management, of dealing with the complainers. Now, let, can you just apply some common sense and biblical knowledge for a second? This is the 12. We know a little bit more about the 12 than this snapshot of their life. How many years did they apprentice with Jesus? Three and a half. Did you ever see them being averse to manual labor? These people, these 12 have shown their chops. They were not above hard work and manual labor. None of them were. They all fully embraced and served no matter what the role was. What are they really showing us? They're showing us this. Number one, we recognize there's a legitimate need here. Number two, the 12 of us can't be everything if the church is going to succeed. We can't be the everything for the church. They recognized God gave them some spiritual gifts that were supposed to be active at this time. And that was primarily in the role of teaching and equipping. And they said, this is a legitimate need. It deserves leadership. But we can't put the primary responsibility on our life on the shelf because that won't be effective. Because what will happen is you'll take people that maybe God wasn't using in organizing and administration gifts and you'll throw them into the, to the pot that's boiling over and they'll be neglecting their unique role to go over here and do something maybe with 50% effectiveness and do this with maybe 50 or 40% effectiveness and neither of those things will be done with excellence in a way that would honor the Lord. They recognized that this was not only a legitimate need, but that there was probably leadership placed in the church that they had been teaching and, tr and instructing that it was time to raise up the qualified people with the right gifts to give the right service to this ministry. And what they're saying is if God has given somebody like a teacher the primary and central gifts to teach that congregation, they must honor God with that gift and not put it on the back shelf for any reason. And if you understood what it takes to have the responsibility of God to teach, in their case, tens of thousands of people how to be Christians, you would understand why it was plausibly impossible for them to set that aside and give the amount of time to administrating and organizing a feeding program to tally the money when it came in, to make sure that the budget was there, to buy the food, to raise up volunteers, to make sure everybody was tr being treated fairly and equitably. Think about how many widows they're having to feed if it needs seven people to volunteer to lead the team. Think about the size and the scale of what this was. And this is not glamorous work. This is dealing with high-need, high-touch people. This is dealing with finances. This is dealing with commodities and resources. They were dealing with a society where they, their buying power as Christians was diminished. So where are they going to go to get all the food, knowing that if they're buying it from people who know who they are and what their cause is, they might be hiking up the prices to get the food to give to the widows. The apostles are not saying that this is beneath them. And no teacher should ever, no pastor should ever say this type of work is beneath us. At the same time, we have to balance that against saying, listen, no pastor can be everything to their church. No pastor can do it. And pastors do more than just teach. And different churches have different expectations for pastors. And I think pastors who are good at what they do make it seem like what they do when they teach takes them five minutes to prepare for and is very natural. That might be some people's gifts. It is not mine. It takes me hours and hours and hours and hours not just to do research and study, but then to take a Bible study and turn it into a sermon and make it memorable and get my heart ready and clean enough to be able to present it and wrestle with it and let it teach to me and then a day or two to recover from giving it and to respond to all the questions and then to get ready to do it again. 
And it's very, very difficult because pastors get tugged on to do tons of things. Counseling, teaching, preaching, administration, finance, understanding commercial real estate, reading leases, managing teams, raising up volunteers, and, and the tyranny of the urgent, everything that just comes up you can't prepare for. Most of us have not learned how to schedule our emergencies. They just happen. And what the apostles are saying is if our church is going to thrive and flourish and really solve this need, it deserves somebody's full attention, not somebody's partial attention. And they had the courage and the wisdom to step up and say that. And so what do they do? What they're basically telling us is that they have a responsibility to minister to God's word and his people and that they shouldn't neglect that responsibility for any reason. And simultaneously, that this need is legitimate and needs to be on the front burner and we need to get a good solution for it and good leadership for it right away. So they identified the problem and now they set about a reasonable and wise solution that inspired great unity and even growth within their church. They call a grassroots meeting of the entire church together. They publicly legitimized the need. They added no fuel to the fire about the accusations of discrimination whatsoever. They didn't even address it. There might be a time where you need to address those things, but they decided this is not the time to even give validity because their investigation showed that it wasn't the truth. And by them even speaking to it publicly might have given it more attention or maybe planted an idea in people's minds where it wasn't even there. And it could have poisoned one group against another even further than it was. They just chose we're not even going to add fuel to the fire. We're going to move forward here. Okay. This shows us another thing. They actually trusted the people they had been training and discipling, that they were ready to step up and be given two things. Here's the practical lesson. If you're trying to do this at your job on Monday and you need to raise up people to solve a legitimate need and it's not going to be you that solves it, you've got to give them two things, responsibility and authority. Listen to me. If you give people responsibility without the commensurate authority, what you're saying is I want you to be responsible, but you can't make any of the decisions. Have you ever been given more responsibility than authority? It's not a fun job. I could tell you stories, right? When you are given the responsibility to lead a certain amount of people to get a certain thing done, but you have to call headquarters for this person's boo-boo and that person wants to take longer lunch and you need to make a decision on the fly and you, don't have, the, you have all the responsibility. Your whole team's looking at you and you say, well, i got to call the boss. That's not a good situation. They released responsibility and authority. They said not only can you do it, you have our blessing to make the decisions necessary, we trust you to run this team. And we will be involved as little or as much as you need us to be. Okay? Verses 5 and 6. Again, verse 5. How this happened is a miracle. You have to see the miracle in these first few words. Everyone liked the idea. There was a unanimous vote here. Everyone liked the idea. You understand how miraculous that is? I mean, even in our little church... What would we be unanimous about? I don't even know. I don't say that. I don't say that condemningly. I'm just like you. Understand how rare that is. Could you imagine our church trying to elect a president? Or uh, we wouldn't be unanimous about anything. But everybody liked this idea, and they chose the following. I won't read through all the names. Can I tell you the one thing they all have in common that you might not know? That is another miracle. Every single one of them were Greek speakers. These are all Greek names, not Hebrew speakers. The entire church said the seven most qualified people, even the non-Greek speakers, unanimously voted for their counterparts saying, we trust you to run this, to manage money. Could you see how that one action silenced any accusations of discrimination right away? When it was time to vote in the team members and pick the leaders, the, you notice the apostles didn't do it. They said, you vote. You vote. But we're going to give you some criteria because we've got a couple thousand people here. Let me tell you how you can vote. Pick people that are wise, full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit. They knew there were specific character traits that would make these people flourish in this job more than another. And the entire church picked Greek-speaking believers to oversee the program. So can you see how the apostles handling this in the right way and the Holy Spirit being present squashed and just shoved in the face of the enemy. Here's what you thought you're going to, you thought you're going to divide us. Not only did you, you saw a little problem here, and they're basically saying to the enemy, look, the problem is much deeper than you even understand, enemy. This goes back even farther than you realize. But you know what? What you intended to do to divide us actually miraculously healed us. Thank you for coming against us. Thank you for giving us this opportunity. And then we get to the bookend, and the church just kept on trucking. They just kept on growing. And... 
the Jewish priests start to convert. Can you see how when a church is healthy and you can trust your leaders and your leaders walk close to the Lord, how even the things that come in and threaten to divide end up being devices that God uses for his glory? So let's just, let's just summarize. I've already taught these points. They don't have to be um, pulled out in greater detail. Verse 7, so God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. So here's what we see. We see a church that was doing a great work for the Lord that faced outside opposition. And the outside opposition was very serious and threatening. It literally ripped the skin off of 12 of these apostles' backs, if you were here last week. It was not just a few people putting a few negative posts out on Facebook. This was a serious, physical, brutal attack against the leaders of the church. Well, that didn't succeed in scattering them. It unified them. So the, Satan changed course, and he brought trouble and dispute inside the church. And the apostles handled it with great discernment and judgment. And we see a little bit of a blueprint here for how we can handle this. And as a result of that, the church continued to grow and spread. And here's what I, I do want to leave this thought with you. It's not, you know, I don't want to leave this thought with you. Because I read this and I say, that's how I want the church that I lead. That's how I want your church, our church, to function. I want us to be a healthy church that can tackle these types of issues with great honor and restraint and wisdom. But I wrote this statement down. I typed it out, actually. We simply cannot expect these results without following this example. We can't expect to grow rapidly increase in our number with unbelievers coming to salvation if we don't follow this example. So what example are we following? In the matter of the Jerusalem church's failure to adequately care for certain widows and orphans, we can notice how four groups of people did the right thing. Now, two or three days after I, I wrote this and sent this off to be printed, I was like, I wish I could have maybe rephrased the first point a little bit. So let me, I'm saying here's four different groups of people. You have the complainers, in this case, the non-complainers, the seven who were voted in, and the apostles, four different groups of people. I'm going to show you the right thing that they each did. We already talked about it. The first one needs a little bit of a disclaimer. The complainers, I'm saying this is the right thing they did, but they did, it, they did the right thing the wrong way. The complainers made the need known, and they trusted their leaders to do the right thing. It's one thing to make a need known. Now, they didn't need to do it in an accusation. The indication of grumbling and murmuring indicates to us they didn't just go behind closed doors of the apostles and say, listen, there's something going on that we want you to know about and we need to work together on a solution. No, they didn't go to their leaders and voice the need. They were grumbling amongst each other. Okay. But the thing we can salvage is that there was a legitimate need that was not being met. And they did give voice to it. That's one side of it. I wish I had a whole morning to talk to you about how to differentiate between a legitimate need and one that's not. There are some absolutes and a lot of gray. The best thing I could tell you is maturity in Christ is the solution. Learning to grow in grace. Understanding that love is not being easily offended and easily given to suspicion and being petty. And it's also not ignoring unmet needs and pretending like they don't exist and seeing it and doing nothing. It's learning to live between those two boundaries and saying, which are the needs that need my voice? And how should my voice be used in a way that glorifies and honors the Lord? I have a lot more to say about that. I can't say any of it today. But the, but the ingredient that really shows you is they trusted their leaders to make a right decision here. When the leaders called a meeting, they showed up. And when the leaders put forward a solution, they listened and they got on board with it. If you can't trust your leaders to lead in times of crisis, find leaders you can trust. Okay? Because you'll never be satisfied will be difficult to them and they'll be difficult to you. Part of you finding a church home means you need to be able to be at a place where you can trust your leaders and not all leaders are trustworthy. But you have to be at a place where you can find to trust your leaders or else you'll be a voice that gets discounted and your needs will there. You can't serve the church any value and your leaders can't serve you any value. So they made the need known, but they trusted their leaders to do the right thing. Number two, the others, okay, the other people who weren't complaining, they also recognized the complaint as a legitimate need. They were able to quickly get past the he said, she said accusation part and say, listen, if there are widows in our church who are not being served, we are cut to the heart about this. Let's drop everything. This shouldn't be. What can we do to help? And you know, when you have that kind of attitude, suspicion just gets squashed right away. That means the recipient of the complaint has to be mature too and not be quick to take on an adversarial position over everything. Some of us need to grow up enough and not 
we need to just not have such thin skin. Just want to, you know, and, and I'm guilty of this. Listen, I'm not one to go pick a fight, but if you bring a fight to my doorstep, I'm a fight. I'm not proud of that. I'm quick to jump to a defensive position. At times, I wouldn't need to be. So I've really been praying to God to grow me in a way where I can receive the type of criticism that regularly comes my way and have enough wisdom to recognize the difference between a legitimate need to parse through all of the packaging of how it came to me and say, what's true, what's legitimate, how can we resolve this issue? And then have the wisdom to say, and do I also need to speak in the life of the complainer a word of correction about how they brought, or do I just need to let it go like the apostles did and give it a chance to be swept over? How do you get there? Maturity in Christ is the short answer. And that's why I'm asking God for it. Maybe some of you need to. Maybe you need to be in the place where you say, you know what, when complaints and criticism comes my way about my choices as a dad, a boss, a husband, a wife, a, uh, you know, a whatever, whatever role you find yourself in, I don't need to be so thin-skinned. I need Christ to help me be mature enough to be able to receive information about legitimate and illegitimate needs and know how to respond in a way that glorifies him. So the others recognize it as a legitimate need and they trusted their leaders. Number three, the seven, here's the thing. <laughs> this happens all the time in church. Gosh, we've got a problem with, you know, we don't have enough helpers for the nursery. Let's go elect seven people to go in there. Seven people didn't have this on their radar. They came to a business meeting. Okay. They hear about a problem, and there's a new ministry in the church launched, the taking care of the widows team. This is not a glamorous job. They are voted into this meeting without a chance to pull their name from the ballot. And they came in the meeting thinking this is going to be a business meeting, and they go out with a new job they were voted into. How many of you have ever missed a meeting and found out you got assigned a new role at the meeting you missed? This is not the thing that probably is highest on the volunteer list. This is literally taking charge of what had been the main source of contention in their church. Okay, you guys are in charge of it now. This is not like everybody's excited about this new ministry. Let's get it going. Everybody's happy about it. This is like, no, this is a mess. It's not well organized. It's not well led. In fact, it has no leadership. It's been going on organically, not intentionally. And this leadership needs to be done. This ministry needs to be done intentionally or people are going to get left out and people are going to get hurt. And we don't want that. The seven said yes to giving their gifts to an unglamorous role in the church. You know, it is not glamorous to come in at 7.30 on a windy day and literally take screws and bolts and put together big, heavy signs and put them out front on the road. And then to stay an hour after you're already done with lunch and take them down every week and unscrew them and load them up. That's not glamorous at all. But when a young man like Brent says, the way I even found out about this life-giving church for me is I was driving by one Sunday and I saw those signs. I'm thankful that somebody among the seven said yes. Because without them, they don't get a chance to come in our family. And without them, they might not even know that we're here. And there's a great message here to say that are you the type of person who in your church body, when there is an intersection between a need and your gift that when called upon, you'll say yes. Number four, the apostles responded to a legitimate need without abandoning their primary task. They didn't use their primary task as an excuse not to deal with something they didn't want to deal with. There's a big difference between saying, that's not my gift, I want no responsibility for it. They said, it's not our gift, and it's not primary, but we're the leaders, and the buck stops here, and God holds us responsible. This is a legitimate need, and even though we can't be the ones who take the baton and run with it, we're going to hit a pause button, call a meeting, and we're going to bring some leadership to this. They were able to actually, do you see what they did? As they were appointing other leadership, and the very same meeting, they're teaching. They're teaching thousands of people how you deal with internal complaints, how you solve problems in your organization when things are falling through the cracks. As they're not abandoning their task, they're doing their task and solving a problem at the same time. What a beautiful example for healthy leadership. So you see, this isn't a message saying if you're complaining, knock it off. Okay? Even though I would add, if you're complaining illegitimately, knock it off. Just stop. Better yet, all you who are listening to it, shut them down. That's the way you stop complaining. A complainer doesn't even think they're complaining. They think they're venting, speaking up, being righteous, whatever they are. If you would stop listening to them, the only person they could talk to is God. 
and he'll shut it down. It's those of us who listen and don't say anything. That is the fuel that feeds complaints. Because even in your listening, you're giving consent. If you don't speak up, they think you agree, even if you don't. Well, I don't want to speak up. Why? Why don't you want to speak up? Because you're selfish. Because you're more concerned about your own feelings getting ruffled and the social consequence of you speaking up than shutting it down. You don't want to be inconvenienced by the courage it would take and the ramifications you might have if you spoke up. You want, you, you know, if you, if you weren't complaining to stop, stop listening to it. Just shut it down. It will stop. Or they'll, or they'll go elsewhere and you win anyway, right? That's how you, I didn't get a lot of amens, but you know that that's right. <laughs> that's the way that that works. If you're a complainer and you don't have anybody to complain to, it's like the tree falling in the forest. I don't know if it makes a sound or not. Who cares? You know? At the same time, in no way does this mean if there are unmet needs in your life, in our church's life, we have to have a culture where we can listen to that and those things can come and surface. We don't want to be flying around blind. If there's problems going on and there's needs, needs not being met, my goodness, we need to know so we can solve these things. You know, we're going to work together and be the type of church that can do this in a healthy way. And I guess what scares me is the only way you do this is you practice. So I'm really excited about my emails on Monday. Pastor, in light of your message, there's been some unmet needs I want to bring to you. Just please do it in a gentle way that honors the Lord and we'll, we'll work on those things together. But we have to be able to be a church that can be mature enough to do this. Okay. And so we're going to be mature in Christ. We're going to go after maturity. And at the same time, we're going to practice. So this is where we're going to go this morning. Let me pray over all of us as Keith and the team come back today. If you're just kicking the tires on what it means to be a Christian and what church is all about, I want you to know we want you to come into a family where we're not afraid to talk about things that are going wrong. And I want you to know that you, I want you to come in a family where you can be safe and be honest and not have to worry that you're going to be victimized by some type of uh, click system or all kinds of personal issues people have with each other. That's certainly not beneath us. Goodness knows that we'll, we'll struggle with that. But I do want you to know that Echo is a church where the episodes of these types of things are very few and far between because we're committed to this. And I want you to feel like you can have entrance into that beautiful family of what church is. A bunch of <laughs> imperfect people who all know that we're broken in the process of being put back together in Jesus. That's who we are. We don't take ourselves unnecessarily seriously, but we do take you seriously and your walk with the Lord seriously. We take our ministry to you seriously. And so I, I want to close this time of teaching with an invitation to anyone who might not have a relationship with God through Jesus. I just want to encourage you. Would today be the day where you say, you know what? I want to have a saving relationship with Jesus. I want to know that I'm saved, that I'm right with God through Jesus. That I know that what you talked about earlier, Pastor, when you said eternal life and and all the promises of God, I want those to be mine. It's a simple process of admitting, believing, and choosing. And if you know that you're broken and you're, you've sinned against God and you know you need to be made right, if you believe in Jesus, that he's God's son, died on the cross in your place, rose from the dead, alive today, and you're ready to choose him as your Lord, not a mascot you pull out every now and again to make yourself feel better when you're blue, but your Lord, then this prayer is for you. And I want to invite you to just pray this prayer to the Lord. He's listening. You just pray, dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. I need to be forgiven. I confess my belief in you, Jesus, that you lived a sinless life, that you died on the cross in my place, that you rose from the dead, and that you're alive today. I accept your gracious gift of forgiveness for my sins. And I invite you Please come and make your home inside of me. I choose you as my Lord. I'll follow your lead. I'm getting off of the throne of my life, and you now sit in its place. You're the master. I'm your servant. And I'll follow you all the days of my life. Heavenly Father, for our entire church family, will you teach each of us what we can do to more closely model a healthy church? That you'll help us to have maturity and wisdom about what we do when we see needs that aren't being met. How we voice those things and whether we voice those things, to whom we share them, and with the attitude that we choose to, to bring those things forward. Because God, you know that our church needs to be aware of where we're not meeting needs. At the same time, will you guard our hearts against being unnecessarily suspicious, mistrustful, accusatory, adversarial, and defensive. Those attitudes don't promote unity. 
they extend the vision. And God, will you teach each of us how we can soften some of those areas to be more like your son, Jesus. Father, we believe you're preparing this church to be the kind of church that can bring in people rapidly, bring them into our family. And in order to do that, you're taking us through acts and letting us see not only the good moments, but the, the challenges their churches face with rapid growth. And so, God, help us to be ready, students. We're, do the heart work now so that as we get ready to do the people work, we can do it in a way that's honoring and glorifying to you. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.